And it's good at it. It's really good, right? It just does the shortcut work. It'll take you from zero to 80%. You need the human element to take you from the 80 to 100. Welcome back to the Facts About Packs podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPAC's Executive Director, and I'm joined by Adam Belmar for what I suspect will be an episode to remember. Today, we join the conversation that seems to be happening everywhere, among everyone, all at once, Mr. Belmar. Isn't that the truth, Michaela? In a news cycle that never sleeps, with a social media universe that unceasingly pulses with creativity, humor, vitriol, and angst, suddenly... There's something undeniably new on the scene. It's powerful and fast and attainable. ChatGPT is a state-of-the-art natural language processing AI text generator introduced to the public on November 30th, 2022, and it's captured the attention of the world, and it seems to herald the rise of artificial intelligence. You know, for most of us, Adam, it seems to have come out of nowhere, really. And from what I've seen and read, no technology has captured the world's imagination like this since maybe the arrival of the iPhone in 2007, Adam. So today, we'll share the latest on what's known as generative AI, and we'll consider the potential hazards and opportunities with Dr. Casey Burgett, Director of the Legislative Affairs Program at the GW Graduate School of Political Management, and David Shield from Three River Strategies. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAPPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community, Michaela. Thanks, Adam. So it's interesting, you know, the company behind ChatGPT is OpenAI, and it's a privately held company headquartered in San Francisco. And the success of their new offering has really led visitors to more frequently see this when they arrive. ChatGPT is at capacity right now, and I know that has happened to me a few times, Adam. So while lucky users get to check it out, Sometimes our guests today have already done some of their homework on this too. So I want to welcome back to the number one pack podcast in America, Dr. Casey Burgett from George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management and David Schild, a GSPM graduate himself and a former professor. Thank you both for joining this conversation. Thank you for having me. Michaela, I spent last night watching the 2001 Steven Spielberg classic AI starring Haley Joel Osment and Jude Law. So I feel really prepared for this discussion. I am not surprised, David. So Casey, let's start with you. So this week, the New York Times published a story with the headline, and I quote, alarmed by AI chatbots, universities start revamping how they teach. So are students who are using chat GPT to write academic papers cheating? Are they cheating? I, it really depends uh, uh, on the assignment and, and what the follow-up is after the fact, right? Like if they just typed in exactly what the, the, they wanted the AI to generate, didn't cite anything, didn't recognize where they got the information from, that's about as clear-cut of a case as of, of plagiarism and cheating as that we can have. It's a brand new world, though, and it's going to be ever, ever different. And I mean, this is only November of, of last year, and this, and now we're in January. We're two months removed from this. So we're, this is a new frontier for us. It's a new frontier for, for academia specifically, where students obviously recognize the benefit of this, particularly ones that were, let's be honest, we were all procrastinators at some point, right? So this 
this is a very, very beneficial tool that um, can at least get you going all the on a paper all the way through uh, to, to, to giving you a, a six page, perfectly prosed, well, uh, well documented paper to turn in under your own name. So if that latter case, if that latter example is what you're doing, yeah, the, the university, if they catch you, is going to call you a cheater. So Casey, how are GWU and GSPM handling this new challenge to original academic work? Or is it still too new? We're chasing it. We're chasing it. I mean, just like this reminds me of like the early days of COVID where we didn't really know what was going on yet. So every email was new guidance, right? Based on the latest information that was was coming across our desk. And I can tell you from the president on down to the provost, to my dean, to, to professors within my program, we're getting new and new guidance of basically warnings of like, be on the lookout for this. Here are the signals you can look at for, for recognizing AI produced papers, whether it just doesn't fit what the, the student's experience, it's lacking emotion, it's using just a uh, very, very baseline like computer language. If it doesn't fit the voice of, of what you know, uh, that, that student or other similar students to produce in, in similar works, then it's well within your rights to start asking questions of, of, of how did you produce this material. But I will say that right now we we're chasing it. We're chasing the ability to, to produce this stuff. We don't have the tools right now to, to catch it with any sort of certainty, let alone um, accuse a student of not producing their own work. But uh, it, it's a huge challenge that a lot has a lot of people freaking out, which is why the New York Times throws this out there and, and why we're getting so many warnings to be on the lookout. David, you spent some time both as a student and as a teacher in this graduate school. I just want to ask you, if no one has ever written it before, how is it plagiarism? You know, it's a great question. And I think that we are living in an era where human machine teaming, and that is my favorite word for the way that people and these kinds of technologies interact. And it was coined by the Pentagon, a guy named Bob Work, who was the Undersecretary of Defense over there. I think that's the phrase that you have to think about here because you have to start to ask yourself, like, what constitutes truly original stuff? I mean, I don't make a lot of scratch recipes, right? I, I sometimes buy things that have already been combined at the store and then I mix them up in a bowl and all of a sudden there's chocolate chip cookies, right? My kids don't like them, but that's neither here nor there. I, I would use like Grammarly as an example of something, right? That is sort of helping you hold your hand to improve your written product. The place I think where we have to be careful is that it's not original thought, but beyond that, it is drawing off of a source material on the web. And so at some point, you have to ask yourself, is it really lifting off of other people's work without accreditation? And I have to believe that sort of the tech powers that be are going to ask themselves this question at the same time. If I said, for example, uh, write me a horror novel about a car that comes to life and kills people, right? Is Stephen King going to have a copyright infringement against Christine because that's what's going on, right? If it's word for word, will the AI eventually replicate an existing product? That's the question that I would be asking. Well, I, I've been thinking about this a lot too, Michaela, and I know you also are taking on the important responsibility of teaching students and helping them through learning how to be the kind of government affairs professional that they can be over there at GSPM. But as I was looking around, I noticed that astrophysicist, author, and science communicator Neil deGrasse Tyson was out there this week. Here's what he said. I see AI as a helpful tool when you can't otherwise get something done as well as you could, but not as a replacement for your own learning. I don't see that. So Casey, does Chet 
GPT on that basis alone become the enemy of students and teachers? I wouldn't go so far as the enemy, but it can be exactly the the opposite uh, path we want our students to do, right? So this is where we're different from replicating a Stephen King novel or, or riffing on your own recipes, right? The purpose of college, the purpose of a graduate school is to give you the skills to, to think critically, to force you to put your own brain, your own pen to paper or your own fingers to a keyboard and produce original thought to add to the conversation, to advance the conversation, not just replicate the conversation. And so that's where where there's a difference between industries and a, a, a difference between purpose. And that's where I think the, the academic setting is really going to struggle with this the most of being able to distinguish. And it's always going to be a gray line, just like everything tough is of like, what is the exact percent you can use from chat GPT? Uh, what, what exact citations do you have to do? Do you have to cite chat BPT right now? Uh, in an academic paper and how, how much can you get away with actually doing that? So these are always the questions and it's going to be somewhere in the middle right now to go back to the first question about like how GW and other academic institutions are responding to this. They're asking us to go backwards, right? When you can't beat the technology, you try to eliminate the technology. And so what they're doing is saying, give in-person exams, make them write their papers in person, make them use a certain web browser that doesn't have access to to these sorts of AI tools. That's never going to work, right? It's 2023. Kids are super good. If they're not super good at cheating, they're super good at getting around uh, preventions from their cheating. It's just the the evolution of kids. That's what we've all done. Um, This is just the latest iteration of it. So right now- This is building a better mousetrap, Michaela. (laughs) Exactly. So we're going to be better at distinguishing this stuff. We'll be creative in, in how we can use this as more a more effective means of teaching. So things like, all right, I'm going to ask chat GPT uh, a question. This is what it's going to produce. So now the assignment transitions from write this paper for me to critique chat GPT's creation, right? That's the advanced way to, to get around to use it. And then the critical thinking comes not from the production of the material, but the critique of the material. And there's a reasonable case to be said that the second one's even harder. You know, Adam, Casey has nailed it here, which is the purpose of the university in many ways is to produce individuals that can think originally and turn those original thoughts into actions that employers and industries have a need for, right? And I, you got to balance that against what I think is going to be widespread adoption in the commercial industrial settings of this technology. I mean, why is Microsoft sinking a billion dollars into chat GPT? The answer is because eventually... They want Microsoft Office, Microsoft Outlook, and LinkedIn to incorporate the fundamental tool set into that software platform, and they want to monetize the advantage that their platform would have through utilizing this technology. So if we say in five years, are the students coming out of any undergraduate or graduate program going to enter a marketplace where one of the tools at their command is artificially intelligent-driven content generation? Yeah, of course they are. Business is going to do what drives results, but we don't want to shortchange people on the university experience, transforming you into a better, more capable person. So Casey and Dave, it got me thinking too, just as I'm, you know, starting up my classes uh, two weeks ago that I was really kind of glad that, you know, Dave, you and even even Steve Billet before you set this class up more project based and, you know, more really following the lines of putting together and creating your own pack, which I think there could be some elements of chat GPT helping there, but maybe it's less likely. I don't know, but it's definitely something I'm keeping front and center. But I'm, I'm really starting to get more curious about how everyone here is experimenting with chat GPT personally. Yeah, I'm 
amazed when I'm inside this tool, right? And I'm sort of reminded of that um, Arthur C. Clarke famous quotation where he said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And when you are seeing something answer a question in real time in prose that is passable or that of a human being, it's it's fairly incredible. You know, I started out asking sort of two questions of this tool. One was, um, you know, how could it be utilized by a pack manager? So you say things like, you know, um, give me 450 words on why I should contribute to a corporate pack or give me an analysis of the changes in campaign finance over the last 10 years. And then I also ran several tests along the sort of opinion editorial side. And that's where I found the tool came up short. Candidly, it does not have a mastery of tone and disposition and uh, an argumentative perspective. It does a lot worse, I think, with opinion writing. And it's not going to replace um, the op-ed page of your local newspaper. It just doesn't have that strength of human voice. But from a purely um, organizational perspective, put these thoughts into coherent bullets and a good structure. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I, I follow the same way. It's like, this is a very, very good research assistant, right? And so just like you, I went to what interests me and how I can uh, measure up what I used to do in, in my entry level roles versus what I assume this thing can do. And so I typed in, write me a bill, write me a piece of legislation that has to deal with uh, getting, let's say, AstroTurf in every football stadium in America. And it's good at it. It's really good, right? It just, it does the shortcut work. It'll take you from zero to 80%. And then David, to your point, you need the human element to take you from the 80 to 100. Um, so to me, it was just like a, a, a very good research assistant, someone that um, you hire and trust and delegate to. And then you you rely on your own expertise, your own experience to kind of take you the, the rest of the way there. And that to me is just like the, the next evolution, right? Every, every technological advance that thought was going to shake up the entire industry. Usually it came with a, a lot of advancements, but didn't take you all the way there. And you always necessarily need to rely on the human component. What I'm interested in though, is that this thing's always learning. This thing's always learning. And so what's lacking now, the human element, some sort of gaps in knowledge of, of different eras or different histories or whatever, wherever it's lacking, the minute you can train these mothers to speak like you, talk like you, and then maybe predict like you. And so again, we're only two months away. I can't imagine what this thing's going to look like and produce in, in a year from now. Maybe we can all go take a vacation and just rely on it. But <laughs> well, that was even in my research too, is talking a lot about the prompts that you put into the chat. And as you engage in that conversation around a certain topic, then it gets smarter on that topic. So the next person that comes along and maybe has a nuance to that, I think you're right, Casey, it's only going to get better. But that's really how this podcast idea for today even began. Because Ab and I, you know, we were talking about, David, I think you're right. I don't think this is going to replace consultants. But is there an opportunity for us in the PAC community, obviously in business in general, but specifically for PAC managers who may not have the operational budgets to hire consultants and hire, you know, writers and all the like? To your point, Casey, you know, a great assistant for so many of our PAC managers who are stretched thin, who don't have the resources to hire additional folks to help them. It does kind of get the creative juices flowing, if you will, especially if you're having to sit down and write a solicitation letter or make a strong case to your executives and why you should be supporting the PAC. My immediate thought was that the one-man bands of the world will get a tremendous 
gift of time by way of this tool. It organizes thoughts well. It prompts well. The hardest part of writing, as we all know, is that first sentence, that first paragraph, right? Exactly. You're staring, you're staring at that flashing cursor and you just can't get started. And my sense is that these tools will build a framework for you that you can then refine and turn into a finished product. And if you are sitting in a pack management chair and you are saying, okay, I need to go inside my membership tool and then I need to go inside my finance tool and then I need to go inside my calendar and then I need to go do my expense report and book my travel for my next solicitation. And all of a sudden you're trying to cram 25 hours of work into a 24 hour day. This just isn't working for me. This becomes a time saver. In the end, you're a salesperson. I don't think this is a tool that can outsell a human yet. So let it get you started. And I think it gives you back the time that you need to focus on other things. I want to go back for a second to what Michaela said about the shift that occurred when the iPhone came out. It, it happened concurrently with a few things. The App Store was one of them. And the hardware piece changed the world. But the ability, the framework that you all are talking about gave creative minds a near limitless ability to begin to create these applications, these ways to use this technology and connectivity that we hadn't thought of. And so this is just me, but I like to go to YouTube. And I look there about Chad GPT and I find videos like, hey, here's a guy who's figured out how to get it to create Excel formulas to help him. And then I realized, wait a second, this chatbot paints and it writes in the style of famous people. I mean, we don't even know quite what it is and we don't really know quite what it can do. We just all have to keep probing it. It's transformative. And I believe that it's not going to replace us, but maybe people who know how to use it might be more attractive as employees than those who don't. Uh, I don't know how much of an employment skill it is, Adam, but the coolest thing I saw online today was a gentleman who had used a combination of AI and deepfake tools to have Eminem rap about supply chains. I like it. I don't think it's going to go platinum. You can like, you know, give me Kate Middleton holding donuts. I'm like, wow, this is my Instagram post for the day. Absolutely. I'm still working through that combo in my head right now. I'll be happy to send that video around. It's um a little surreal when you're listening to it. We'll listen. I'm more talking to Kate Middleton with donuts thing. I just got it. Such right? a good glimpse into your life, Adam. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit more leg than normal here on the number one pack podcast in America. But look, it is going to reshape business and media. It's one of these things where we may come to find out that some of the people that we thought were writing some of the things where enterprise level writing has been experimentally being done by a model. It is a model. Casey said it. David repeated it. It's only as good as the data that it has in the source material, which is evolving. It's literally learning. It's machine learning. We talk a lot about how revolutionary this is. And for many sort of casual at-home individual users, this does seem like it just dropped out of the sky. But I will tell you with my communications hat on that the need to generate content quickly for fairly repeatable tasks has actually been in play for a number of years. The example that I would use is a number of financial news services have um, artificial intelligence tools that will listen to an earnings call and produce a simple release, a simple story on you know Yahoo Finance that basically says, today, XYZ Corporation reporting earnings of XYZ. Now, that was written by a human 10 years ago, but for at least five, if not more, there have been tools that basically listen to natural language and summarize what they are hearing. 
because it's not a good use of any publication or channel's resources to simply have reporters ingesting and writing very simple, rote, repetitive stuff. It's the original thought thing that I think these tools really, really struggle with. But once it's a repeatable process, it's easy to teach a machine to do it. So this has been out there and people are aware of it. And I think the big distinction is people have been able to spot it, right? You've been able to distinguish it. And this is the, this is the Turing test, right? Named after Alan Turing, the famous British mathematician from World War II who cracked the, the Nazi Enigma code, another great movie. If you cannot tell that you are talking to a human or a machine, you fail the Turing test. And that's where we're headed is tools like these that are as good as people. And boy, that is when you have to start worrying about the implications on the workforce, especially in a remote work culture. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking while you guys were talking about the, the media and business implications, which obviously are huge ones, there's going to be governmental implications with this too. And this goes back to the answer about just one-man bands, which we don't think of it this way, but oftentimes they are. But congressional offices are often this way. So think about how this can free up time of just the, the limited staffing resources with individual members of office, where they literally commit 25, 30, 35% of their staffing resources to constituent service mail. This can free up those times. This can do a lot of the legwork and just legislative summaries, histories, a lot of just that that really time intensive tasks that take away from the opportunity to be innovative, to be predictable, to or to be predictive, to to actually set the the, the legislative agenda rather than just respond to it. And so if I'm a 24-year-old staffer and I master this stuff, particularly if I'm entrepreneurial, I just get yelled at on the phone all day and I have to send out these letters all the time. Maybe I can use this tool to take the brunt of that casework. Not only will it be more effective at it, more empathetic with some proper trainings too, because humans run out of their empathy at the end of the day. And I can just start making my way in towards some policy realms and be really good at it too with using the same tool. Doing that research, that legwork, that summaries, it would just be a, a real capacity builder for individual members of office, campaigns, congressional committees, the White House, all of it. Maybe just everyone becomes a little bit more effective and, and constituent service concerns. You're calling oftentimes with a need. You don't care if it's a human feeling that need or someone processing your visa. If they're good at it, that's better for everyone. So maybe this could be another instance of a threatening, but still a win all around. Casey, that's such a great point. I've even seen today, and I think it's just going to be more and more on this, but also some accusations of already seeing some political bias within you know the responses that we're getting. So I, I don't know where this is going, but my goodness, what a what a sea change. I'll tell you where I'm afraid it might be going. When we start talking about companies from California that are changing the world, I start to wonder, is this not just Cyberdyne systems and the development of Skynet? In three years, Cyberdyne will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberdyne computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. I think everybody reaches immediately for those science fiction references because any, again, any technology that is this transformative fills people with a sense of unease and in some cases a sense of dread, right? There is a narrative out there that, you know, robots are coming to take your jobs. And I, I don't subscribe to that. I do think that what robots are coming to do is create jobs that weren't there before in place of some of the jobs that are going to be destroyed. I don't think writing and creating and, and being the fountain of original thought is going away anytime soon. But to Casey's point, the reduction of mundane tasks, the reduction of repeatable tasks, 
the reduction of things that we now view as a waste of time, that is a benefit. That is a net benefit. I am not at war with dishwashers because I would rather be scrubbing plates. I know. That's such a great example. It really is. And look, I think we all have to be open-minded and honest about what the promise is. We've already put down the dates. Everyone, you know that it, it the thing came out in November. We did a podcast on it in January. It became self-aware and killed all of us sometime late in 2024. <laughs> Become self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they tried to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. But before that, we're going to keep investigating it, Michaela. Well, and we got to come back, you know, in November of this year, we probably need to reconvene this group and see how far it's advanced and if some of our early discussions and predictions came true. Casey, David, thank you both so much for joining us for this just really fascinating conversation and, and being with us again on the Facts About Facts podcast. Always a pleasure. And thanks to all the real humans downloading and sharing the Facts About Facts podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.